Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Behind the Product. I'm your host, Zach Garnell. Joining me on this episode is our CEO, Raman Ori. I asked Raman to join me for this panel show because he spent over 25 years at SCP and has a ton of experience in recruiting for us. I also have Mike Seidel from Pivot CX and Wes Wenham from Woven back onto the show. I thought it would be interesting to hear from these three perspectives, given the labor market volatility over the past couple of quarters, and what they've seen from their customers. They all shared some interesting insights and even a couple of things to be thinking about for the future. I found the conversation insightful, and I hope you do too. But before we dive in, I've got a favor to ask. I love feedback, good and constructive. So if you've got thoughts on what or who we should be talking to, please send me a note at podcast at sep.com. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of you. Now on with the show. Thank you guys so much for joining. Mike, Wes, and Raman, all three of you are behind the product veterans at this point. So it's a lot of fun having you guys all back together to talk about the world of recruiting. You know, thinking about this show, I thought it would be just interesting to talk through. There's been a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of years with COVID, the pandemic, a huge influx in e-commerce and tech hiring. It's been really hard to find talent. Expectations have shifted. Everybody went remote. And then over the last year, you know, still things are going kind of well and started to kind of shift a little bit this year. Some companies have had some layoffs. So it's been a lot over the last two years or so, right? So I thought it would be just a fun time to get everybody together. So I appreciate all of you for joining. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, we all went through a lot. I think getting to this today, I think we had uh, what surgeries, people getting sick, all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm glad we're finally together. And it's great to be here with Russ and Raman. No, I appreciate it very much. So to kind of like set the stage, I thought it'd be good to set some context. So, you know, Mike or Wes, what have either of you observed over the last couple of years the state of recruiting, the state of like maybe talent acquisition, talent management. What have you guys noticed in, in your worlds? You know, Mike, from a Pivot CX perspective, looking at recruiting holistically, and then Wes from a, you know, really like a talent assessment and specifically focusing on kind of that niche. I'm kind of curious from your two vantage points, what have you guys seen? Mike, I've seen like a really big peak to trough. I don't know about you, where the end of 2021 was about as hot as it's ever been compensation was going crazy. People were open to more creative backgrounds and changing things to hit headcount goals. And then about Q1 2022, public markets froze, venture funding dried up. And especially for companies that were venture-backed, it was just about April. It was just an entirely different world. Uh, we went from you know people bumping up headcount goals and stretching comp and opening up to things they wouldn't be open to, to some, a lot of companies not even backfilling, just putting a freeze. So it has been a very interesting, I think that the Chinese insult, may you live in interesting times, very much applies to the last year uh, in the recruiting world. Wes, I can't agree with you more on that. It's been, uh, 
easily the wildest year I've ever seen in the recruitment space. And it's been the uh, best way to sum it up I can think of is um, everything's great. Everybody panic. It's one of those things where we're out there working with companies in this market where they're doing layoffs in a market where unemployment is as close to zero as you can get without hitting zero. I mean, it's just absolutely nuts. So you lay somebody off, two weeks later, they have another job somewhere else and they're getting paid better. It's absolutely crazy. And, you know, it's really, really, really hard to apply anything that, you know, I look at my career that I've learned early in my career to what's going on out there now because it just defies all logic. That's interesting. Actually, you make an interesting point. I had that thought this morning as I was, I was going through my LinkedIn feed. I saw a couple of friends here in Indy that I know got laid off here recently, and they already had started new positions. It's just amazing to think about the world that we live in is not predictable, seemingly. It's very volatile. Have you guys seen this? Is there a specific vertical that's Obviously, big tech is is uh, is the the one that hits the news the most. But if you've seen other verticals that are, I want to say, vacillating, but are you know kind of like shuffling folks from you know one company to another, it's like this company you know overhired, and so they've got to they've got to balance everything out. But this company underhired, and they couldn't attract the folks, so now they're able to actually get folks. Is it more complicated than that? It's complicated, but there are definitely some trends. So the big tech layoffs are in the news, but. Meta is back to where they were in Q4 of 2021. So it's not like the overall reduction has been intense. It's just there was crazy growth and most of these companies have retrenched to where they were a year ago, which was at all-time highs. So we're not crazy there. FinTech is definitely down. Interest rates just really hurt a lot of those business models. So they are down the most, I would say. And then any later stage venture-backed company is going to be very uncertain. So Talent is flowing away from those types of companies. But you look at your more bread and butter, enterprise SaaS, boring-ish, you know, companies, they're still hiring. You know, they're all like, well, we're, we're gonna hire, you know, these next six. And I don't know after that, but they're still hiring. They're just not making huge bets. So away from fintech, away from late stage venture capital and towards kind of everybody else. What are you seeing, Mike? Well, we're seeing out there, and you know, we work in a market that's you know, all companies, not just tech, but what we're seeing out there in general is that companies that are in segments that are really tied to the hip with interest rates or availability of capital are having some chop right now. So if you look at mortgage, there's problems over there for sure. Rates are up, mortgages are down, don't need salespeople, don't need people to process mortgages if you're not writing them. Then if you go over to tech, Wes, I really like the way you looked at it. It's a lot of the companies that are either riding the crypto wave uh, over in fintech or are venture funded or struggling. But the truth is IT is still hiring and they, they'll hire every engineer and developer they can get their hands on. Most of the companies that we're working with are kind of established physical product companies that became tech companies or tech enabled, I think is tech points preferred language. And they haven't been able to fill their needs for years. And so I think some of the recovery of these layoffs is flowing into those companies. And they're probably not the first company that people think of. If you're a, a software engineer leaving a West Coast VC-backed company, you, you don't think establishment device company or automotive. And now they can step up and fill some of those spots. Roman, do you think that there is a shift that we've noticed here at SCP? I'm not as involved in our recruiting, but I know that you're heavily involved still in recruiting and talent acquisition for SCP. Have you noticed a shift for us over the last year? 
So let me let me answer that two ways. So the, the first thing I'd say, the shift I've noticed in the last two years is you cannot, as a recruiter, get people's attention. Like uh, candidates have been bombarded for the last several years, and it's almost impossible to get on their radar. I, as a CEO, get inquiries about being a senior software engineer at places. Like it's just like a blind, cold mass campaign, right? If you have any kind of tech on your resume, so. That's the the trend I've noticed. So it becomes extremely difficult to do targeted messaging, to have some sort of hiring brand and reach people. The trend I expected to see that I have not seen. So SCP hires a lot of people fresh out of school. And I thought, given economic conditions, that we'd see a much softer market there because companies are often afraid to make a bet on next summer. And traditionally, you have to hire by Thanksgiving if you want to hire people fresh out of school and get them by next summer. And that market has stayed hot, which I'm taking as a positive sign, not certainty, but positive sign about kind of the overall economic state. There is what we hear in the news, and then there are the actual signals we're getting out in the world. That's an interesting point. You know, Mike or Wes, have you guys experienced something similar where you had maybe an expectation based on some of the market conditions and things going on that have so far been proven to be false or something else happened? We have seen a drop in the number of our customers hiring entry-level engineers, not you know falling off a cliff, but that's definitely dropped where folks are shifting. Well, I only get two headcount instead of four, but it, I kind of would expect it to totally drop and hasn't completely dropped. So it is dropped, but not as much as I would have guessed given the uncertainty and the fact that entry-level folks are an investment that doesn't pay off in the first you know, six to 12 months. What we're seeing out there is maybe a little bit different, but we're seeing a lot of companies where the old traditional layoff patterns apply, where we're laying off the people that were paying two, three X what an entry level gets paid and continuing to hire the entries. So we're seeing a lot of people just adjust salaries because to be honest with COVID, there were a lot of people that moved out of the office to cheaper areas and aren't paying rent in San Francisco anymore. And a lot of the companies are looking to harvest the savings from that. And it's really, really hard to cut somebody's pay. So a lot of times layoffs are the answer for that, unfortunately. So, you know, we are seeing just the classic pattern out there of laying off the seniors and continuing to hire the juniors. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. A lot of folks relocated to your point and behooves the company to try to balance and, you know, uh, reshift the compensation to match the markets that their employees are currently in. That's interesting. It's an unfortunate truth. But when you have people working in the office and they move out of the office, all of a sudden, the the universe of people that employee are competing against is literally everyone in the world. If I'm a developer and I'm working from home, I don't have the same intangible presence in the office that somebody that's in the office has. doesn't mean I can't develop software as well as somebody in the office can. But it does mean that that my salary is going to get evaluated using a much larger marketplace than just San Francisco or just Seattle or just New York City. Do you think that that like right now in this moment and maybe in over the last year that because there was this massive wave in 2020 and 2021 of peaked expectations, compensation benefits that kind of went to a new ceiling for a lot of companies as far as trying to attract talent? Do you think that West, to your point, fintech is taking a little bit of a hit. So there's going to be a, a reallocation of talent out of fintech and into other companies. Are companies able to 
I don't know, re-regulate, I don't know the right word, the expectations that they can set for those folks. You know what I mean? Like if fintech grew and some of those folks reaped some of those benefits, are there some new realities and expectations that they're going to have to be met with? I think it's really rare for someone to take a role that is a step down in comp, at least. That's just, there are a lot of homes in my neighborhood that are still unsold after a long time because the market changed and folks are just psychologically not willing to take a haircut. I don't think we'll see a lot of folks taking big compensation cuts, but you will see folks taking forms of compensation cuts. That's my prediction is um, you go from a place where it's more cash to a place where it's more equity. Those are hard to do a one-to-one comparison. So psychologically, it's a little safer to say, you know, yeah, it's, you know, cash has stepped down, but I've, I've got more equity here. Like this is an ESOP, so I've got more upside. So I think you'll see shifting between types of compensation. That makes sense. Yeah, I would imagine if I was held on to this new two-year you know, salary comp, it would be really hard for me to kind of let go of that. It seems like a, a heavy burden for companies to absorb though. Like I wonder if at some point that will balance back out or are we perpetually going to have kind of inflated salary demands or not even just salary, I don't want to think myopically, compensation demands. Because to your point, it can be in the form of a lot of other things. Fringe benefits packages can look like you know a multitude of things. That is an interesting point. I wonder, are there other maybe characteristics or skills or traits that, you know, Mike, you talked about how, you know, during the pandemic, when companies were having a hard time finding the right talent, finding folks that were willing to come work for them, they maybe looked at a different set of traits or skills or characteristics and kind of broaden their view on who would be a good fit. Do you think that there's going to be another shift like that? Or has that started? I'll start this. And Wes, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to add to this. But right now, we're just kind of in in a a period of time where things are really just not level. Everything's choppy and in in a state of change. But underlying all of this, a demographic shift happened two years ago in the United States. And that demographic shift is really simple. Our labor market effectively is going to shrink until 2045. And that affects everything. That means that there's less people, you know, back to this, those new junior engineers and everything, there's going to be less of them, far fewer of them than there are a number of jobs for them, barring some huge advance in AI that maybe will happen next week. Maybe not. Chat GPT, uh-huh. right? Didn't it just launch? Or what a, yeah, there's just so many things going on. But the reality is we're going to need people to make software for a long time. We're going to need people that can do this. We need people that can manage people that are making software, all the roles around it. It's still huge. It's still going to be huge. And there's not enough people entering the profession to fill the positions that are there. So we're kind of in a state where there will be a perpetual inflation, you know, wage inflation, everything. It's going to be competitive to hire engineering talent forever until we find a way to not need engineering talent anymore. That's a fundamental change in the market from where it was four or five years ago. You know, it wasn't that long ago. We had an average of eight, nine candidates available for every open job in the U.S. And now we're less than one per open job in the U.S. And we're in the middle of supposedly a recession. And so outside of just some kind of trends that have affected tech, mainly, you know, crypto collapsing and, you know, capital being constrained with venture funded companies and that sort of thing. Those are very short term issues that work themselves and out in the market pretty quickly. Over the next few years, we're all going to be facing it'll be increasingly difficult to find enough developers to fill all the open positions that all of us have. 
And it's going to be very, very important to do two things really well. One is be very, very good at finding the right developer. And that's what gets me so excited about having and Wes on this is, is uh, his expertise and his company's expertise right, is around getting the right person for that job. And then, you know, when I'm looking on our side of things, we would do a lot of our work at the top of the funnel and helping companies accelerate how quickly they engage with candidates and move them through the hiring process. We try to take people from where it takes months to hire down to taking hopefully a day, maybe less than a day to make a hire. We try to get them to go really, really fast. And you do that because it's really competitive out there and it's going to remain that way for a long time. So all the things we're talking about today, you know, the layoff things, the weird thing, the situation normal part of it's going to be, there's just not enough engineers out there. And those of us that want to have successful companies like SCP going to have to go out of your way to find really, really good talent and be very aggressive when it comes to hiring and comp and all of those things. It has not gotten fundamentally easier to hire experienced engineers. The only segment that I'm seeing is a little bit easier is if you're previously paying like 300, 400,000 a year total comp for a senior engineer, it's a little bit easier now because they don't all have Facebook and Google as options. But for everyone else, it's just about as hard as it has been. It is just as much a candidate's market and it's still very hard out there. Yeah, that's one of the things that was I was curious to get your guys' thoughts on is I think about, you know, fang companies, big tech companies going through some of these layoffs. Does that make some folks maybe that would otherwise not have considered a company like SCP that's in, in the Midwest? Is that advantageous for us? Is that a good thing for us if we're if we're looking for senior folks? Or we're comparing apples to oranges. They're really if they want to work for big tech, they're gonna work for big tech and they don't really want to work for small town, you know, Midwest tech companies. What have you guys seen? Depends on who wants to move. Because the folks that are in Mountain View, they're going to hold out for another job in Mountain View or they're going to move. And, you know, you do some LinkedIn poking around about layoffs at the big tech companies. It was non-developer roles, largely. And then where there were some developer roles, mostly the like more fringe roles outside of their core office was, and when I say fringe, I mean you know, data engineering is an engineering job, but not all of uh, Google's data engineering is in is in Mountain View. I'm sure there's going to be a couple folks bouncing to Indiana from Mountain View. I hear it's a great place to raise a family. Yes, I can uh, can vouch for that. We've had a lot of our clients have a lot of success pulling talent out of other other cities and getting them to come work in Midwest. But the way they're doing it isn't. It's kind of not that exciting, and it's not because the Midwest is awesome and all of that. It's just because they're getting to the candidate before the other recruiters do, getting them to accept the job. And 90% of candidates take the first job they're offered, even if they make $200,000 a year. So the faster you're able to get people through the hiring process, the more likely you are to be the first offer. 90% of the time, they're going to accept the offer and take it. And with developers, if you get them engaged and you get them working in a project, the faster you get them engaged, the more likely they are to just not answer the phone when the other recruiters start calling them. Pretty simple stuff. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. Roman, I, you know, during the pandemic, we hired a couple of folks that had relocated to us, you know, after we reopened our office and somewhere during that. Do you recall, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, do you recall some of those conversations with them around being compelling about why Indy is an awesome place? I'm just kind of curious. Do you remember some of that? I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're a Indiana company, then you've, or, or anywhere in the Midwest, right? You, you've gotten good at offering the value prop about why it's good to be here. 
I'm going to lift your question up just a little bit. I feel like uh, some companies get it in terms of what are you doing when you're recruiting, right? So this is probably your most valuable resource. Some companies could claim their IP, their technology, but generally speaking, the people in your company are going to decide the fate of your company. And so it's maybe the most important thing you do. And it's not hard to look around and for the past, I don't know, 20 years as tech has been building, companies haven't, (laughs) they haven't figured out that this is that important a job and identified their brand. This is who we are. This is the value proposition I am offering you as an employee and then selling it. And this feels gross to say selling, but it is. It is a sales job in the same way that you would sell to a potential customer. And I think that for companies that were good at it, this is bad news because now it's been so competitive that everybody else has at least had some inkling that they should probably work on this and maybe gotten a little bit better. But I think even now, I'm seeing a lot of companies that are um, they're not getting clear on their identity or their style. Are we hybrid? Are we remote person? Get clear about it. Get very good at it. And then hire people that fit what you're trying to do. I don't see a lot of precision in the market in that regard. That's a really good point. Thank you for elevating my question. You're always really good about broadening where my head's going. On that point about knowing who you are, our customers who are least successful at hiring are the ones that are like Indianapolis, Chicago, or remote. It's like a very easy thing to say, like, I want, you know, these two office or remote versus if you just go remote or you just go Indianapolis or Chicago, it's that kind of halfway that makes it really hard. Like, uh, candidates uh, are going to be more likely to apply to the ones that are just in those cities. If they see that, they're like, okay, if I'm remote, I'm going to think, all right, they're probably just going to hire someone from Indianapolis or Chicago. So there's just there's a lot of value in being clear about who you are. You know, the other thing that's funny, Wes, is it's not hard to put another job post up for the remote engineer and not have that problem. <laughs> just, it's amazing to me. And, and I love the, you know, when you start looking at what Raman said about treating talent acquisition, like it's actually an important function of the company. It's something that we don't see enough of out there. I see so many companies that treat hiring like it's some kind of fire drill, like they somebody quit, we got to hire somebody. Or they have accumulated a team, a recruiting team that just doesn't have a lot of strong players on it over the years. And it's because I think a lot of companies don't think about how important the people are that are building their product. You know, they think about their IP as being the most valuable asset. And the reality of it is your IP is only as good as the developers that built that IP. Uh, a lot of companies need to really refocus, need to take a real hard look at talent attraction and talent acquisition and look at that and go, hey, this might be worth investing in a little bit because you know the situation, it's not going to get easier to hire. We know the labor market's going to shrink for a couple of decades. We know it's already competitive. We're in a recession. We still can't find enough people. Maybe it's time to treat it like it actually is as important as it really is. And that extends to looking at the tools you're using. That extends to looking at how you're equipping those recruiters. Is recruiting a miserable job where the the recruiters are being expected to call people on the phone and no one's answering, for example? You know, are you giving your recruiters and your hiring managers good tools for screening and figuring out, is this a good candidate? Is this a bad candidate? What are we doing to make sure there's a good cultural fit there? Are we really thinking those things through or are we just kind of going to spend more money on Indeed, get more candidate flow? That's not going to fix it. So, Mike, you're touching on something I wanted to kind of transition to. So thank you for setting that up. 
as we look forward, like you're kind of painting this picture. And part of the reason why I thought the three of you would be a good group of folks to talk about this. So if a company recognizes that recruiting for them has been largely transactional and an afterthought, and they do want to take it more seriously and think about making it a fundamental part of their business, because it's not going to get any easier. Like, what are the things that they should think about when you talk about tooling and you talk about process, you talk about intentionality, what does that look like? And I'm sure every company is a little bit different. So I'm asking paint broad strokes here or Raman, quite frankly, I mean, this is something that I think SCP has done really well. How do we approach this? So the, the little engineer inside, like, well, this is clear. I started first principles and then I, I work down to the artifacts and right, you work through the process, but, you know, start with that identity. Who are we and what is the value proposition that we offer? And who do we need to be good at that, that thing that we do from there? You know, you can really do a much better job of writing a job description. You can write much better copy. You can figure out where to go recruit. Can you afford to do the investment in fresh outs? Do you need to be exclusively hiring very senior candidates? If you're a remote company, how are you going to figure out if this person can be effective in a remote setting? And that's a whole new skill set for a whole bunch of companies right now. And they historically haven't had to develop that. Are you even good at it with the people that you already have? And what could you learn from them and carry through? I don't think there's any silver bullet. It's just traditional knowledge work. You got to go to the first principles. You got to look at what's working and carry it all the way through. One of the things that I have loved about SCP and is on my radar to get more entrenched in that I've never seen a company do this before. So in past roles, I was used to, if I was hiring somebody from my team, it was largely kind of my decision. I would in, involve folks in the process and want them to meet team members and, and get their feedback and such. And largely now at SCP, I have not been involved in that. It's very maker-driven. Maker, maker is kind of SCP term for you know folks that are you know engineers, designers, product folks. It's kind of a committee of folks that are on the recruiting team that work through the process. And we have a head of recruiting that kind of shepherds that thing along. But it's largely folks are hired by the people they're going to be working with, not by the person they report to, quote unquote. And it's a very interesting model that I've not seen done at other companies. You know, Mike and Wes, how do some of your customers think about the way that they would create some of these structural and cultural elements to recruiting? There's, a, say, more decentralized and more centralized models. And we talked to a decent number of companies who started with a fully decentralized model. It's very attractive. Because you kind of don't have to do anything. You just kind of pushed out to hiring managers. It's the Steve Jobs quote, you know, hire smart people, get out of their way, which is, you know, nice to say until you realize that hiring is just really, really hard as a competency. And you are rebuilding the process in every little corner of your organization. So finding the right amount of centralization is a through line for our customers that grow faster for the folks that are later stage. So you can't leave your hiring manager on an island. So that's like, what are your core tools uh, is really important. What are the things that are consistent across every interview? Like, do you have like a values or culture interview that you can iterate on like a product? You ask the same questions, you make the rubric a little bit better. Uh, when you have a, a hire that doesn't work out, do you go and look at their values interview score? So you can see like, all right, what did we not pick up here? So some sort of reusable process, at least in the evaluation side. Do you have like assessment type tools that you can look at past data and see, did this past data predict performance on the job? Because if not, maybe don't use that thing because it's not actually providing value. 
but you got to have enough centralization that you have enough reps that your folks are not just on an island. That matters a lot. From our perspective, we work with a lot of companies that come to us and they, they have a recru- really serious recruiting problem. And we found a few things that most employers really just leave out when they think about hiring and they, f- they think about recruiting. The first thing is, what do your recruiters spend their day doing? How many candidates do they touch in a day? And most companies, when you look at recruiters, they talk to 10 people, 10 candidates, maybe a day. That's all they can get a hold of on the phone. That's, the, that's all that's answering the emails. And so we really spend a lot of time with our customers, helping them shift to communication channels where they can actually reach the candidate. You know, if you're running an Indeed job ad and waiting a week to respond to the candidates, you've already lost two thirds of the candidates that Indeed has sent to you. And so what we try to do is help companies learn how to recruit in real time. So if somebody applies for a job, why not talk to them right now? Why not do that? And then what we find is that really helps a lot with branding and with the employer brand because the candidate's experience is immediate. It's better than everybody else because they're getting to talk to the recruiter faster. And the tools are out there if you want to equip a recruiter to be able to talk to 500 to 700 candidates a day, shift over to text messaging and use texting to talk to the candidates instead of trying to call them on the phone. All, you know, we get a 63% engagement rate on text messages. We get a 1% answer rate on phone calls. So there's a lot of really basic things that a lot of companies don't get right in the tools. And then I love having a great culture and great employer brand and all that. But if you're not able to connect with the candidate, you can't tell them about it. And a lot of these companies out there that are struggling with recruiting, they just don't let their recruiters have enough time to actually talk to candidates. They're spending all their time talking to hiring managers and spend a lot of time in meetings and the average recruiter has to work with 21 different computer systems. So 21 different pieces of software to do their job. It's crazy. And they wonder why nobody's getting hired. It's a lot of tools. And I, I think you've all looked at a lot of HR tech tools. They're not very good, are they? <laughs> not the ones I've used, but I'm not in HR either. <laughs> I'm on the consumer side. A lot of bad <laughs> software in HR. <laughs> so if I were going to flip this and kind of give anybody that might be listening to this who is a potential candidate, What's something that they should be thinking about as they engage with a cluster of employers that are all looking for their attention? How should they think through navigating the multitude of folks that are hitting them up on a day-to-day basis? Mike, you talk a lot about like urgency and getting in contact and getting engaged with them as quickly as possible. Me on the other end of that, how should I think about that if I'm looking for a job? I'll tell you, there's two things out there that are just you know, if I were talking to a candidate, especially a software developer looking for a job, if you run into an employer that isn't responsive, isn't calling you back, what signal does that send to you about how they're going to treat you when you're an employee? This, this thing about being responsive to candidates and being fast, it's all about giving the candidate a great experience. It's not about, you know, go faster just because you can hire better people. Yeah, you can. But if you think about it, 87% of candidates in, on average don't get the job. So recruitment, talent acquisition, employer brand, 87% of it is about rejection. It's about how do I reject someone and make them not hate my guts? And that's the truth. I'm sure there's an art to that. Yeah. Well, but the best way to make people feel good when they're being rejected is just be immediate and honest with it. You know, if somebody doesn't have what's required, just tell them on the spot, look, we need somebody that really does know spring and have enough experience with it. They can be effective on our team. Once you've been doing this for a couple of years, apply again. 
and they'll say thank you for it. But if you send them the vaguely worded letter six months later that says we didn't hire you for reasons that we're not going to disclose to you, that doesn't make anybody feel good. It just makes people feel like, well, nobody cares. So, you know, if you really think about all of this, it's it's not hard to, uh, you know, with developers and engineering talent, the faster you go, the less extra rounds of interviewing you do, and, and the more you honor and respect their time, I think the better you do. And I, I think that everybody who is in this business, I think we all understand there's enough imposters out there that employers do have to assess you and they do have to do some level of screening. And I am going to have to do some sort of proven I can actually code and proving that I can actually work on a team. And I think everybody's okay with taking assessments and that kind of thing. A, if as long as I'm telling you about that early on, you know, part of the process is an assessment that's really important. And then the other thing that really makes a huge difference is if I go fast with everything else, you know, if I, I push through to get you in that initial phone screen, same day you apply, if I can get that done, that puts me weeks ahead of everybody else and also makes me as a developer feel like this company actually really cares. And so when I go to take a big assessment, I'm going to sit there and go, you know what, this one's worth taking a couple hours of my life and putting in an A effort on it. It's important. So I think that a lot of this comes down to just treating people well, like they're humans and, and really understanding they want to be talked to, they want to understand what they're getting into. And the best way to show them what they're getting into is by from the experience they're having. Yeah, it's really, you know, Wes, you and I've talked about this in the past, and you talked about how, and I'm probably going to butcher your words here, but employee experience starts earlier than their first day on the job. And so it's really important to, you know, Mike, to your point, to treat them in a humane, you know, caring, responsive way. And that's it goes longer than I think probably I take for granted. I love that sentiment. There's no leader out here that's like, you know what I wish? I wish my team was slower at getting <laughs> things done. And one of the things you build that momentum is, did you move fast in the hiring process? On day one, did you have your laptop set up? Did you have access to the accounts? And you know, it seems small if it takes like an extra day, but that creates that uh, momentum that helps folks have the expectation of moving fast and asking themselves you know, what do I not actually need to do today so I can do this other more important thing? Or I've heard it described as uh, Scott Dorsey, the exact target uh, founder CEO talked about our job as leaders is to capture folks' discretionary time. So like make them choose to do this type of work. That's how you move faster as an org. And that start with hiring. Zach, you did ask about advice for candidates. And I want to do one. I think there's kind of more junior folks. And my advice here is apply to a job that is not remote. If you're early career, there are 14% of the jobs on LinkedIn right now are remote. Those 14% of jobs get 50% of the applications. If you're replying to a remote job and your early career, it's a numbers game that is stacked against you. Versus if you can find something local, you have a much better chance. Uh, later career, and I hate that I have to recommend this, network, your personal network is still the best way to go. So if you can find someone you know that uh, you worked with on LinkedIn, that is hiring and ask them about it. That's like a 10x improvement in your likelihood to get into the next shot. People that don't need advice know who you are. Like if you're a math software engineer, you don't need this advice. Just apply wherever you want. But for everyone else, it does kind of matter how you get into the recruiting funnel, unfortunately. Good advice. Roman, have you noticed anything in our many years of recruiting that like things that we've learned along the way as a company, like, mm, 
let's not do that again. Let's change the way that we uh, engage with our candidates. I think as both Mike and Wes have noted, the making the whole process a great process. Even if you get a candidate, maybe you end up in, a, in an on-site interview and very late you figure out, oh, they're not qualified at this point. Maybe they will be someday, maybe not. It is easy to be grumpy in that. It is easy to be less human and not be kind. And, you know, you might have caught somebody on a bad hair day. So, like, I think it's really, really important to, even if it's going to end in a not offer, to treat that person well. You're going to run into them again. The tech world is not that big. And, it, you know, beyond even being just the right thing to do, it, I think it says a lot to people in how you treat them, whether you make an offer or not. Raman, have you ever had a candidate that you've rejected come to you with another candidate that was perfect? Yes, we have. And we have had candidates that we rejected who came back. And I'm going to own it. Like I have run interviews where I don't think I was that very kind hiring manager. And, you know, over time I learned, like, what are you doing? Like, that's not how I would treat anybody in any other situation. Why am I doing it here? I don't know. Maybe that's a little too too personal for the podcast, but no, not at all. I think interviewers, you know, need to really pay attention to that experience. You guys hit on it before. It is all important. And as a, a friend of mine says, how it starts is how it goes. So what you show them through that process is a good indication of what it's going to be like, good or bad. But one of the stats I am most proud of, of my product team, is our fourth biggest customer acquisition channel is candidates who were rejected from one of our customers. So they were rejected, had a good enough experience in partnership with their customers, they got feedback, and they remembered that. And then when they went to their next job, they're like, oh, this is a woven thing. I, that was pretty good. And then they become customers. It's like this rejected folks, Mike's 87% number. There are just so many people in that bucket. And they're all, you know, maybe not now, but later, or they know someone now. It's, it's really an underrated. And I've, I've been the hiring manager and you're so busy. You have the second job on top of your real job. You're a recruiter. You have too many open recs. So like I get the psychology behind it. So I think the message is try to build repeatable ways to make it a good experience for the rejected folks. Uh, my friend was rejected from Atlassian. The rejection email was freaking, it was, a, it was beautiful. It's like she didn't feel rejected. She felt like this recruiter was helping her find the right future role in Atlassian. It's clearly a form letter, but the care in that letter means that everybody who was rejected from Atlassian for that class of role recently probably is like, I'm going to keep looking at Atlassian's career page and tell other people. And that was one email that probably took a lot of care, but it scaled. That scalable way to treat rejected candidates well um, really matters. Well, I love all of the learning and the experience and context and the lens that, that all three of you brought to this. I think a lot of folks that are either haven't been thinking very intentionally about recruiting and, and need to uh, can walk away from this with quite a few threads to pull on to better the way that they engage with their candidates. So I appreciate all of your time and perspective and, and vulnerability there, Roman. I think it's great to show that we can all learn over time and, and get better. I know that uh, I've definitely, I hope to continue to do that for the rest of my career too. So it's awesome. So thank you so much guys for joining and uh, uh, look forward to doing it again in the future. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thanks, thank Zach. you. 